0: I thought we should take the time this weekend to recapitulate the events leading up to July 4th, what led to the Declaration of Independence. To understand what happened in the years leading up to the American Revolution, what we first have to understand is that the British Parliament saw a major threat in the United States. The major threat was that the United States was growing so quickly that it was quite possible that eventually the population of the United States would outnumber the population inside Britain. And when that happened, the center of power within Great Britain would actually be across the water, It would actually be in the United States. Because there'd be more British citizens living in the United States than there were living in Britain. And so they could not allow there to be any sort of parliamentary representation for elected officials by the members of the the American colonies. It just wouldn't have been a possibility. By the time of the revolution, there were about 2.5 million American citizens who were not slaves or Native Americans living in the United States. The population of Britain at the time of the American Revolution was about 8 million. That was the the total population of Britain in 1775. So the the fact that the United States represented such a large number was quite threatening. It was the king-making power, essentially, or parliament-making power in the American colonies that scared the the bejesus out of the British Parliament. And so what you see is from 1760s on, the beginning of the 1760s, Britain continuously attempting to use the colonies as a sort of udder to milk for purposes of adventures abroad. Because remember, the British Empire... Now, the sun never set on it at the time. At the time of the American Revolution, the British Empire spanned basically uh, uh, across the world. If you look at a map of the British Empire in 1776, it's astonishing, right? It covers all of Canada. It covers a large swath of Africa. It covers Australia. It covers large swaths of India. It, it moves into some of the Asian islands. Like it's, it's it's enormous. And those are constituents. right? If you're talking about places where the British had dominion. You're talking about, at that point, nearly half of Africa, a large swath of the sub-Indian continent, and control of the seas, essentially. So they had to get their money from somewhere. And the place they decided to get their money was from these American colonists. So this the real conflict of 1776 starts much earlier. It starts circa about 1764. So 12 years in advance. So it wasn't like things just kind of blew up in 1775. There was a long train of abuses, again, as mentioned in the Declaration of Independence that led up to this. So all of this really starts in 1764 when Parliament passes what's called the Sugar Act. The Sugar Act was designed to raise revenue. And so what they do is they increase tariffs on non-British goods that were shipped to the colonies, artificially raising prices on the colonists living in the United States without their permission. It is an indirect tax. Basically, if you wanted to get tea from India and it wasn't a British good, then it would be taxed at a higher rate than the British goods. And therefore, you would either buy British goods, sending your money to Great Britain, or you would have to spend more money and pay a tax to Great Britain. Because at this time, capitalism was not in vogue. Instead, you had a sort of mercantilist system, a state-sponsored charter system with regard to capitalism. Then, Parliament didn't stop there. They also issued a Currency Act, which prevented the Americans from creating their own currency and trading amongst themselves without using the British pound. And so, colonists began boycotting British goods. They said, okay, well, we're just going to consumed domestically. We're just not going to buy anything from Britain, which, of course, hurts the British economy in pretty significant ways. Not only that, smuggling becomes incredibly rife because people still want their goods at the price they were paying before Britain decided to artificially raise the prices via tariffs and taxation. In response, in 1765, the British government passes the Quartering Act, requiring the colonies to pay for their own occupation. Now, the colonies are supposed to pay to provide barracks and supplies to the British troops. And then they doubled down even more in 1765. They passed the Stamp Act, in which Parliament issues a tax, you now have to pay the Brits. On every newspaper, almanac, pamphlet, broadside, on dice, on playing cards. Basically, all the most popular consumer items in the United States are now going to be hit with a British sales tax. How unpopular was this? Every Stamp Act agent in the entire colonies resigned before the effectuation of the Stamp Act. That's how unpopular it was. And Congress passes a Declaration of Rights and Grievances, and this is when you start hearing the claim, no taxation without representation, right? You can't tax us without our permission. We don't even have constituency in Parliament. In 1766, it looks like Parliament is going to back down and maybe some sort of, of deal is going to be reached. They repeal the Stamp Act. But at the same time, they, they, they want to save face. So they pass what's called the Declaratory Act, which says, like, we're not doing this because of you guys. We're just doing this because we want to, not because of you guys. They also pass a new set of taxes on glass, lead, paper, paint, tea. These are the Townsend Acts. And again, the colonies basically said we're going to boycott all British products at this point and ignore the British government. In 1768, the British start shipping troops into Boston. In solidarity, Virginia's House of Burgesses condemns the British actions against Massachusetts and says that only Virginia's governor and legislature can tax the citizens because the citizens are electing people to the House of Burgesses, but they haven't elected anybody in Britain. Again, Britain seems to want to back off a little bit in 1770. They walk back the to Townsend Acts, except for the tax on tea. And in response, it seems like things are going to calm down. The colonies then release their boycotts on the British imported goods, and they start buying British goods again. But the presence of British troops in the colonies is still making people very angry. The Quartering Act is still in place, and this results in 1770 in the Boston Massacre, a famous situation in which British troops who are quartered in Boston are out in public, and a bunch of colonists, angry at their presence, begin rioting and chucking objects at them, and the British, confused, fire into the crowd, killing some American citizens. And their lawyer in this case is John Adams, who says these guys still deserve due process of law, and uh, they end up being acquitted. But this doesn't, of course, solve any of the conflict. It just ratchets up the tensions. In 1772, there's a a case that is largely ignored by sort of American history, but is pretty crucial, actually, in which a bunch of men decided to attack a British customs schooner, uh, a boat for the customs officers near Providence, Rhode Island. And the important thing here is that the British government puts out a reward, and then when these guys are captured, instead of trying them in the United States, trial by jury, instead, they decide to ship them back overseas to Britain because they are afraid that there will be jury nullification, that an American jury won't condemn these guys, so they ship them back to Britain for trial. So now, it's American citizens don't even get trial by jury of their peers. Instead, they get shipped back to the mother country, where they know no one, and where the entire jury system is sort of biased against them. In 1773, Parliament, again needing to raise money, they passed the Tea Act. Here, what they did is they reduced the tax on their own tea. Instead of raising taxes on everybody else's tea, they just reduce taxes on British tea. They subsidize British tea. And they undercut American tea or people who are trying to ship in foreign tea. And this results in the Boston Tea Party in which Americans say, well, we're not going to allow you to do this. We're not going to allow you the incentive of of boosting your own economy by artificially lowering your price either. We're going to toss this tea overboard in the Boston Tea Party. In 1774, now Britain is, is getting serious. It looks like war starts to look more inevitable. They passed the Coercive Act, banning all unloading or loading of ships in Boston Harbor in response to the Boston Tea Party. They also give protection to all royal officials, allowing the transfer of every single court case involving riot suppression or revenue collection to Britain. So now this is the new rule. If you riot or if if you hurt a tax collector, your trial will not be held in the United States. The United States is too ungovernable. Instead, we're going to send you back to Britain. The Quartering Act is then broadened to include not only that the colonies are supposed to pay for barracks, now if... The colonies won't pay for barracks. The Quartering Act says that the British can simply confiscate a home and quarter troops in private homes. The first Continental Congress is formed in response, and they create, again, committees to boycott British goods. You can see how much of this is about economics, right? But this is the whole point. Economics lies at the root of personal individual rights. Whenever you see people today who talk about economics being completely divorced from individualism and rights, understand that economics is very much tied to how we perceive our ownership of property how we perceive rights that that pre-exist the government and what the government's role is in all of that. Economics is not just, quote-unquote, how we decide to structure. It is how we decide to treat people on an individual level. So in response to all this, British troops begin to occupy Boston and fortify it. And in response, the Minutemen are organized. In early 1775, Parliament passes the New England Restraining Act. And now war is pretty much on the horizon. British troops are occupying and Parliament bans trade between the New England colonies, and anywhere except for Great Britain. So now they're basically saying we're going to criminally prosecute you if you ship your goods anywhere except for Great Britain. They're trying to cut off New England from the rest of the United States is what's happening. They've created basically a protective trade wall around New England and try to make them dependent on the Brits again. Royal authorities also say that in order to enforce this, force may have to be used. This all results in Lexington and Concord, which is really the start of the Revolutionary War, April 19th, 1775. British troops move on Concord because they understand that there is an ammunition repository there. And they're going to go there. They're going to remove the ammunition and and destroy it. Paul Revere and William Dawes then go on their famous ride to activate the Minutemen. The Minutemen arrive at Lexington. The British arrive at the same time. Almost by accident, firing gets started. Really, nobody knows who fired the first shot. The supposition now is that it was the Brits. They fired on the Americans at Lexington, and then they proceeded to march on Concord. At Lexington, several Americans fall, but a bunch of British are killed when they march on Concord by the militia, who are hiding out behind rocks and trees and basically engaging in guerrilla warfare. About a month later, the Second Continental Congress is convened, and a month after that, George Washington is named Commander-in-Chief. Famously, George Washington wore his military uniform to the Second Continental Congress because he was the highest-ranking officer in the British Army who was serving in the United States at the time. So he showed up in uniform, basically said, I'm ready to go. Six days later, he took command in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You can go visit the the exact site where he took command of the British troops. It's now a softball field directly outside of Harvard Law School, actually. On June 12th, General Gage of Britain put martial law in effect in Boston. He said anyone who helped the Continental Army would be considered a traitor. Americans, in response, fortified Bunker Hill. The British Navy sees this happening. They open fire on the hill. Americans resist. Eventually, they lose the hill. But this is the first major conflict of the Revolutionary War. Uh, It was basically 2,400 British troops and 1,000 American troops uh, in pitched battle. Now, at this point, Congress is still trying to figure out a way out of this because conflict has now been going on, like violent armed conflict has now been going on since April. And it's been a full five years since the Boston Massacre. Congress is still trying to find a way out without losing face. They declared their loyalty to the king in the Olive Branch Petition. They said, we are loyal British subjects. All we want is our right as British citizens. And the king declines. John Adams wrote at the time that the Olive Branch Petition was basically like a last gasp effort and also an attempt to say to all of the Tories in the, in the colonies, Listen, we've tried here and they just won't let us have peace. He wrote, quote, you will see a strange oscillation between love and hatred, between war and peace. Preparations for war and negotiations for peace. We must have a petition to the king and a delicate proposal of negotiations, etc. This negotiation I dread like death, but it must be proposed. We can't avoid it. Discord and disunion would be the certain effect of a resolute refusal to petition and negotiate. So in other words, you sort of have to look conciliatory in order to unify the country when the king rejects this thing. My hopes are that the ministry will be afraid of negotiation as well as we and therefore refuse it. If they agree to it, we shall have the occasion for all our wit, vigilance, and virtue to avoid being deceived, wheedled, threatened, or bribed out of freedom. If we strenuously insist upon our liberties, as I hope and I'm pretty sure we shall, a negotiation will terminate in nothing, it will affect nothing. So at this point, Adams is saying, revolution is coming. At the beginning of 1776, Thomas Paine releases Common Sense. It sells an astonishing 120,000 copies in its first three months. Again, there are only 2.5 million citizens of the colonies at the time, non-slave, non-Native American citizens. The British evacuate Boston in early 1776 after the Americans surround it. In May, Congress tells all of the colonies to adopt their own constitutions without regard to the British crown's authority. Remember, all the states were originally chartered by the British crown. So that's a revolutionary move. And now we get to the actual creation of the Declaration of Independence and the the declaration that we are going to be a free and independent nation. June 7, 1776, Richard Henry Lee is a delegate from Virginia. He read a resolution before the Continental Congress and it is adopted, quote, that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. Richard Henry Lee has sort of an interesting history. Originally, he was supposed to be the guy who wrote the Declaration of Independence. He's sort of been a little bit forgotten by history, Richard Henry Lee, very famous family, obviously. His cousin, Light Horse Harry Lee, was a general during the Revolutionary War. You'll know that his son uh, was uh, Robert Ely, of course, who becomes another historic American figure. Four days later, there is a postponement of consideration of the Lee Resolution and whether it ought to be adopted. And the reason for this is partially a delay tactic because many of the delegates, remember, communications weren't instantaneous at this point. Many of the delegates had to go back home and get permission from their constituents, from the the Congresses and Houses of Burgesses and and Parliaments, etc. There had to be some sort of delay so communications could take place. In the meantime, the Committee of Five is appointed. The Committee of Five is John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Robert Livingston of New York and Roger Sherman of Connecticut. Now, as I say, originally, Richard Henry Lee was supposed to write the declaration. He couldn't because he was busy drafting the Articles of Confederation. He thought that uh, that would be overburdensome. And also his wife was seriously ill. Jefferson wanted Adams to write it. And here is what Adams later wrote to a friend. He said, Jefferson proposed to me to make the draft. I said, I will not. You should do it. Oh, no. Why will you not? You ought to do it. I will not. Why? Reasons enough. What can be your reasons? Reasons first, you are a Virginian and a Virginian ought to appear at the head of this business. Reason second, I have obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular. You are very much otherwise. Reason third, you can write 10 times better than I can. Well, said Jefferson, if you are decided, I will do as well as I can. Very well, when you've drawn it up, we'll have a meeting. Robert Livingston, you know, the, the kind of forgotten members of the of the committee. Robert Livingston actually had himself a pretty stellar career. He eventually became ambassador to France under Jefferson. He negotiated the Louisiana Purchase. Sherman, was the only man who signed the Articles of Association, the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution, which is a pretty impressive record as well. Now, when it came to the actual Declaration of Independence, there was some negotiation over the language of the Declaration of Independence at the beginning of July. Most controversially, there originally was a section in the Declaration of Independence condemning the British Empire for its traffic in slaves. The Declaration of Independence said, quote, he has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery at another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. And the, the notion that the American Revolution was rooted in a desire to preserve slavery is a lie. Hey, even the founders who held slaves, many of them believed in the immorality of slavery. They were of divided mind on the subject of best. Jefferson is a, an excellent example of this. Jefferson in the same document called Slavery Piratical Warfare, He mentioned the British made an offer in 1775 that if they joined the British army, they would be freed. And Jefferson uh, tried to say, well, you, the British, forced slavery upon the colonies and now you want to free the slaves to fight against us. And that's not okay. That that originally was in the declaration as well. The section was removed at the behest of both southern states who wanted to preserve slavery and northern states who felt guilt in having participated in the slave trade. Later, Jefferson would write in his autobiography, The clause reprobating the enslaving the inhabitants of Africa was struck out in compliance to South Carolina and Georgia, who had never attempted to restrain the importation of slaves and who, on the contrary, still wished to continue it. Our northern brethren, I also believe, felt a little tender under these censures, for though their people had very few slaves themselves, they had been pretty considerable carriers of them to others. So the question was, would there be a revolution or would there not? The language was removed. Same sort of thing with the Constitution. Would there be a country or would there not was the question, and slavery had to take a backseat to the eternal detriment of the United States but that was at the time an insoluble problem. On July 2nd, 1776, the Lee Resolution was adopted by 12 of the 13 colonies. New York abstained. After voting for independence, the Congress made changes until July 4th and then signed the Declaration of Independence itself. The adoption of the Lee Resolution on uh, July 2nd is, it, is what Adams thought would be historic. He thought that we'd all be celebrating July 2 rather than July four. He wrote, the second day of July 1776 will be the most memorable epoca in the history of the United States. He said, I am apt to believe it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward forevermore. You will think me transported with enthusiasm, but I am not. I am well aware of the toil and blood and treasure that it will cost us to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom, I can see the rays of ravishing light and glory. I can see that the end is more than worth all the means and the posterity will triumph in that day's transaction, even although we should rue it, which I trust in God we shall not. For a guy who said that he was a poor writer, uh, Adams uh, was not correct about that. So there's a lot worth celebrating. There you have sort of a, a quick history of the lead up to the Revolutionary War. A good thing to remember on this Independence Day. I hope that you're having a wonderful Independence Day weekend. And just remember all the people who have come before you to make it that possible.